Now, we're excited to be here uh, when Pastor Allen asked if I would fill in when he was in Florida. It made me actually um, excited to take a vacation in Florida. So I am in April. So, you know, thanks to Alan not being here today. Uh, yeah, I have vacation time. But man, I'm just excited to be here for real. I, uh, uh, just praying about this, like uh, praying about this time to be able to talk and share. Uh, I, I've, I feel like the Lord has laid something on my heart and um, I'm hoping that and praying and have been praying that we would be encouraged in Jesus, that we'd be encouraged in, in who God is and what God's plan is for everyone who believes. And, uh, you know, we live in this world right now. We live in this time that, and this isn't going to be new, so I have to bring it up at this moment in time, but we live in a time where good is called evil and evil is called good. And we're, li- we're living in a time where light is called darkness and darkness is called light. And it's a time where this world is, is really struggling and they're reaching for so many different places to, to try to find hope that... The worship team led us today. I was like, this is awesome. Every song just connected us to Jesus. And it's this, this moment where we know hope. If you're a believer this morning, if you understand the cross of Jesus Christ, then you have hope. And that's what I want to talk about. But I, actually, we're going to, I don't know if you need to open your Bible. There might be times to open your Bible. Sorry about that. But we're going to go cover to cover today. <laughs> um, and, and my, my, my hope is that in this, as we are living in this time and the people you rub shoulders with, the people you work with, maybe people in your family too, as, as uh, we go through what God and his word has said, hopefully that will help you to have this, this underlying joy and encouragement as the world reaches for hope in multiple different places, right? We, we have hope. We know hope. It's Jesus Christ. And, and so I just want to, I'm going to pray. And then I just want to uh, jump into the word of God. We're going to start in Genesis 1. And we're going to work our way all the way to Revelation 22. We have till 2. Is that what you told me? Okay. Just kidding. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we just, again, come before you. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for the for the hope that we have, the confidence, not a maybe, but a definite confidence as we will see in Revelation of who you are, of what you've said, of what your plan and purpose is for mankind and you. God, I ask that our hearts would be encouraged as we live in this time of darkness, this time of hopelessness. Father, I ask that we would just be uh, hearing from your spirit this morning and that you would speak through me and all my stuff that's just me would just be forgotten and you would be the focus. And I ask this in your son's name, amen. God has set forth this plan. As you know, you've read scripture at all. You find out that God, before the foundations of the earth, he set forth a plan and he set forth a plan that is absolutely phenomenal. But sometimes we forget what that plan is is. Someone, has, someone told me that Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and Revelation 20, 21, and 22 are the most forgotten about passages in scripture. Don't know if that's true or not, but I thought that was a pretty powerful statement. But the other thing about those, those chapters 
If you'll let me make a little picture here for a minute. You have Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and you have Revelation 20, 21, 22. And if you were to take them and fold them on top of each other, they mirror each other. It's pretty phenomenal. Chapter 3 in Genesis, we find Satan. In chapter 20, we find Satan in Revelation. And we'll, we'll get there. So it's really cool how, how God, what God's plan is. So God, as you know, in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God, he created the heavens and the earth. And it was without form and void, right? And so as he creates, he goes through these days and each day he creates something else. The first day he creates light. And he said it was good. And then the next day there's this expanse of water and he separates the water and he makes sky. That's pretty phenomenal. And then the next day he makes dry ground, brings it up out of the water. I don't know exactly how he did it. I wasn't there even though the beard might make you think that I was. Um, and he makes dry ground, and on that day, he makes vegetation, all kinds of vegetation. And what's really incredible is God's got this plan over the six days of creation to ultimately make his, his ultimate creation, but he's creating a place for that ultimate creation to live and breathe and eat and survive. And when God creates on that third day and he creates the plants, it says that they are bearing fruit. That's significant. The next day, God creates, this, is, this just blows my mind because this doesn't work for science. Um, on the next day, he creates the sun. Now, don't plants need the sun and the moon? And then he creates stars. That's just, that doesn't work with what, how we understand science. And then he creates uh, the, the, the animals, all the birds and the fish, and he creates, then he creates land animals, and then he gets to his ultimate creation, which is mankind. And he creates man, and he, he takes man out of the dust of the ground. He, he makes him however he did that. And then he breathes the breath of life into him. He, he breathes his spirit into man. And then God picks Adam up from wherever he created, whatever dirt pile he brought him from, and he sets him in a garden paradise. Now think about it for a second. Adam, the first time he wakes up and opens his eyes, when life is breathed, breathed into him and he opens his eyes, he's laying in some grass, fully grown. He's not laying on just soil. And when he looks up, he sees birds, and he hears something rustling over here and it's an animal. And then he looks over and these trees have this beautiful fruit on them. Everything was provided for them. The air was perfect. No pollution. The water crystal clear. Everything, God and his love. This just demonstrates the love of our God. It demonstrates who he is and how much he cares for mankind. But there's something here that we may forget and may not really pay attention to that runs through the entire Bible. And that is, is that God, when he created man, he took man and put man in, his, in God's earthly dwelling place. God dwelled in Eden. That was God's garden. Scripture calls it God's garden. And he took man and he put him in to his dwelling place. Man's original design was to be made fit to dwell in God's dwelling place on 
earth. So you might be making some connections already towards Revelation. He gives Adam this ability, he gives Adam this authority. He says, you know, we're gonna make man in our image. So in the image of God, he created man and woman. And he placed them in this garden paradise, this, this location where God himself and I believe angelic beings, as we'll see in Genesis 3, end up being able to come to and walk in and it seemed to be normal. They're, they're, they were placed in God's dwelling place. God's purpose for man was for man to dwell with him forever on earth. I think that's pretty awesome. When we start to think about God, like he created the lush plants and the food and everything, and it was already there. Everything was perfect, perfectly placed and perfectly set up. So that when God finished creating, he said, it's all very good. And he put man there. So he creates Adam. He gives Adam this, this ability to image God as he is God's representative to the whole world. As an image bearer of God, wherever Adam went, God's image was to go. And remember what God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, and fill Fill the earth. So they were imagers. They were these people who uh, created in the image of God were supposed to take the image of God around the whole world. And they're cultivating a garden, which also was supposed to go around the whole world. That was their job. That was their purpose. But, so Adam gets that name, the animals, which means he has authority. And God says that human beings have authority over the animals, the plants, everything on the earth, the fish of the sea, everything. So he names the animals, and after he gets done naming the animals, he realizes, wait a second, there's no companion for me. There's nobody here to help me carry out what God has commanded me to do. Like there is for all these other created things. So God puts him to sleep, pulls out that rib, closes it back up, and he makes woman out of man, and he brings him to her, and and Adam is just so excited that now he has a companion that can now help him work together with him to then take God's image and God's garden around the whole world. Until Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three, as you know, Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're in God's dwelling place and they're, they're trimming things, they're mowing the lawn, they're doing all this stuff, right? Fishing, I don't know, and swimming for sure. They're hiking through this garden. They're taking care of this garden. And all of a sudden, there's this other being in the garden. Genesis calls it a serpent. Other places, including Revelation, say it's Satan, the devil, the dragon. Other places tell us that, that the devil, Satan, is an angelic being. So when in the garden of God, in this location, there are angelic beings. And hold on, if you're, not, if you're thinking, oh, I'm not so sure, there's gonna be more. So he says, this, this angelic being comes up to him and we'll call him the rebellious angelic being. And he, he comes up to Eve and he says, you know, did God really say that you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? She's like, no, of course we can eat from the trees of the garden, except for that one, and we're not supposed to touch it either, and you know, or we'll surely die. Oh, so God's not a good God, is he? 
He won't let you have everything, will he? In fact, God's afraid that if you eat that, you're going to know good and even, and you'll be like him. Paraphrase. Eve takes the fruit, as you know, and she bites into it. <laughs> and it, apparently it appears that she doesn't have to actually search for Adam. It's not like he's over there somewhere trimming the grass. He seems to be right there next to her, and the dude says nothing. And she's like, here, I can, this is my, my brain. I, you know, you're, you're Adam, and you're kind of like, I don't know what they're talking about. And, Ooh, she just ate that. Let's see what happens. <laughs> you know, and then nothing and so he, she gives it, and he's like, huh, maybe God wasn't telling us the truth. Clunk. He eats whatever that fruit was, and their eyes are open. They realize their nakedness. They become so self-aware and self-absorbed that they run and hide when they hear God walking in the garden. Remember, it's God's garden, not Adam and Eve's. You're welcome. And he, they're taking care of it, but God's walking in that garden. And then all of a sudden they're like, ooh, here he comes. We're going to hide. And we're going to sew leaves together to hide our nakedness. And you know the story. God confronts them. And, and they in their brilliance and their high intelligence say it was her fault. <laughs> she says it was, it was a serpent's fault over there. And then we have some of the most beautiful parts of scripture that we could ever look at. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Genesis chapter three, verse 15. I'm gonna jump in there and read that for us because it's huge. This is the first gospel presentation. Verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the cattle of the living creatures of the field. On your belly you will crawl and the, dust of the, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. Here it is, verse 15, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, singular. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Here is the first gospel presentation in scripture where God says, I am going to fix the problem of sin and I'm gonna fix the problem of you hiding in my presence. Because they weren't supposed to hide. We weren't supposed to run away from God and be hiding. We were supposed to dwell freely in God's presence at all times. But all of a sudden they can't. And God says, out of her seed, singular, her offspring, one, he, a male, will now be the one who rescues you. He will crush the serpent. He will crush Satan's head. And by the way, this serpent bites his heel. And I've heard it say that it's like really not a big deal. It's just a little on his heel. But if that's a poisonous snake, you're dead. And you look forward, right? We know, so I'm gonna jump forward real quick. You jump forward into the gospels and you see Jesus die. And in his death, he crushes the serpent. Sorry for jumping forward so fast. So here at this point, God has determined a curse for the woman and for the man and for the earth and for the serpent. And then he looks at man and he says, you know what, if man stays in my presence, in my garden, he's gonna eat from the tree of life. And he's gonna remain in this horrible place, this horrible uh, situation of being stuck separated from me, alienated from me because of his sin. So he, he kicks him out of the garden, puts some angelic beings at the east entrance of the garden with flaming swords. 
What's awesome is they had to be able to see him. How would you know? Wouldn't you try to get back into the Garden of Eden? Like at least to get the fruit. Maybe you'd still hide from God, but they saw these angelic beings and, and they're flipping swords around, lightsabers, whatever, flying around and keeping them from the garden and from being in God's presence. They were no longer able to be in God's presence. But there's one cool thing God did, or maybe two that he did before he kicked them out. He made a promise and he spilt blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And he shed blood of an animal. We don't know exactly what it is. A lot of people think it was probably a lamb, but nobody knows for sure. And he made clothes for them as he kicked them out of the garden. And, you know, if, it, it's, it's crazy because this is horrible. Man is created as he should be to live in God's, God's dwelling place on earth for his whole life and to take God's dwelling place around the world that was God's story. That is what God wants for man. He wants mankind to know him and dwell with him. And man, deceived and rebellious, rejects it. We didn't trust God. And so a curse comes in the world and sin entered the world and death through sin enters the world. And from that point on, everybody dies. Genesis chapter four is this reminder of how bad humanity actually gets. And there's these genealogies in there that we, we can read through. If, if you read through your Bible, you can read through them and you can go, oh, wow, that dude lived, you know, 600 some odd years. That guy was 700. Ooh, this dude was like 996 years, 69 years. Like, wow, that's amazing. And we miss it because it says, and then they died. Man wasn't born to die. Sin brought death. But since death is in our world so much and we are so used to it, when you read he lived 969 years, we go, I, you know what? That's hard to believe that somebody can live 969 years. Would I want to live that long? How, what would I look like? How long would my beard be? And we miss the death, because it's so normal in our world. But it wasn't normal in God's. It wasn't normal in God's plan. It wasn't what God's plan was. So what's going on? You get into Genesis chapter five and, and you have this genealogy from Adam to Noah. And I love scripture. Scripture is totally amazing. I'm sure you love scripture too. There's this really cool thing um, in chapter five, verse 28. When Lamech, so he's one of the descendants of Adam, great, 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 great. Methuselah's son, Lamech, had lived 182 years. He had a son and he named him Noah, saying, this one will bring us comfort from our labor and from our painful toil of our hands. Listen to what he's thinking about. Because of the ground that the Lord cursed. Whoa. Noah, this dude somehow named his son Noah, believing that Noah was going to rescue mankind from the dilemma they're in. Remember, God promised the seed of a woman was going to rescue mankind again. And this guy, Lamech, thought it was Noah. Noah kind of does, doesn't he? 
So Genesis chapter six, you get into Genesis chapter six and all of a sudden you have this story of these angelic beings, these sons of God, seeing that women are beautiful and they come down and they, they procreate with women. They create these giants, these Nephilim. Supernatural beings, partially human, partially angelic. I don't know how that all works, but that's what scripture says. And then it says that man, the intent and the, the thoughts of man was completely evil. So God's like, that's it. I've had enough, done. But Noah, God notices Noah. Noah's a righteous man, the only one in his day. And he says, Noah, I'm gonna destroy everything with water. I'm gonna flood the whole earth. I'm gonna destroy all this evil. And I'm gonna start over with you and your family. So you know the story of the flood. Everybody dies outside the ark. The eight people inside the ark survive. Noah, his wife, his boys and their wives Everybody else is dead. All the other animals die except the ones that make it in the ark. He comes out of the ark. He offers a, on an altar, he offers a, a lamb to God, praising God for all he's done. And God says the same thing to Noah that he said to Adam, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Remember, Noah is a righteous man. This is a new start. This was a new time, a new way for, for God's image through a righteous man to go throughout the world. And boy, it happened. Until a little farther in the chapter. When you get to chapter 11, you find out that once again, man is a train wreck, all of mankind. And God, said, God had said that they needed to spread out over the whole earth. We have the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, man says, you know what? God told us to spread out, but if we do, eh, we're gonna be alone. So let's not do that. Let's stay together, make a name for ourselves, and we will build a tower to God. We don't need to have God come to, over to God's presence. We will go to God. We will make this thing, and we're gonna make a name for ourselves. And God once again says, they're rebelling again. Let's go down and see what they're doing. Look, they're trying to build a tower to me. By the way, side note, mountains in the Bible have to do with holy places. Moses will go up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. Abraham and Isaac go up on the mountain to make a sacrifice to God. Just like in, 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 in uh, Greek mythology, Mount Olympus is a place of the gods. It, that comes from true stuff in scripture. So here, human beings are trying to build a mountain to which God will then dwell on, but they actually want themselves to be gods, to be the ones who dwell. Interesting thing is it, we're gonna fast forward a little bit from the tower. God chooses right after Genesis 12, God chooses a man named Abraham and he, he, makes, he, says, he gives him a promise. He says, I'm gonna make a great nation out of you and out of you, the whole world will be blessed. So here's a connection back to the Genesis 3.15 and then in uh, Genesis 12, one and two. From Abraham, we know comes the, the family of Israel. The nation of Israel is born out of Abraham. God does some incredibly miraculous things in that. And we'll pick it up. Israel has been in captivity for 400 years to Egypt. 
Egypt is worshiping other gods and God says, no, I'm gonna send you Moses down to them and I want you to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And if he won't, we're gonna send plagues. They end up sending 10 plagues, right? And they're, they're horrible plagues. Each one gets worse and horrible and nasty. And the last one, all the firstborn, everything dies unless they've put the blood over the, the post where we get the Passover from. God is fighting for his people. And he gets his people out of Egypt and they're coming out and the Pharaoh's like, fine, get out of here. I can't take it anymore. You know, get just. And as soon as they're gone, he's like, that was dumb. I'm gonna go get them back. And he chases them, goes to the Red Sea. And God in his brilliance and God in his desire to be with people puts this wall of fire between the Egyptians and the Israelites in the Red Sea. God tells Noah, or Noah, God tells Moses to put his staff out over the Red Sea. It parts, they walk across. He's, as long as he's holding it up, it's good. And then he touch, puts it out over again, and bam, it comes down, kills all the Egyptians. They all die. Do you know why scripture says that happened? So that Egypt and all other nations would know that Yahweh is the Lord God. Yahweh is the God who knows Israel. So now they're in the wilderness. They wandered around for 40 years, even though they didn't necessarily have to, but they did out of some rebellion. In that time, in the book of Exodus, this is so cool. If you've read through your Bible, maybe you've read about how they built the tabernacle. The tabernacle is a picture of Eden. First time, blew my mind as I'm reading through that and realizing this. They, they have to design the tabernacle like Eden was designed. It was going to be God's, and it was God's place on earth where he would come and dwell and Moses would go meet with him face to face. Another mind-blowing thing. The tabernacle was this place that had, it, you could only enter from the east and as soon as you entered on the tapestry were cherubs, not the little baby things with the diaper. That's not a cherub. These, these are massive warrior guardians. A cherub is a guardian of God's glory. Scary, scary beings. They guarded, they guarded Eden and they guard the entrance into the tabernacle. And as you get into the tabernacle, now there's, there's the candle, right? With, with this, with um, uh, almond flowers on it. And it's made out of gold and it's placed in the middle and it looks just like it represents the tree of life in the middle of the garden. And as you progress, you get closer and closer to the curtain where God's presence dwells on the other side. And you can't go in because we were kicked out of God's presence. Fast forward a little bit more. God has been dwelling with his people in, his, in the tabernacle for years and years. And finally, King David's on the scene and David's like, I wanna make a temple for you. I wanna make a permanent place for you to dwell in this land. This land that was promised to us. And so God gives him exactly how to make the temple. And guess what happens? The temple looks just like Eden. Golden floors. It's got cherubs that are huge, 15 feet tall with its wings that touch one side and touch the other side. And you have to walk underneath those. And there's this candlestick in there that looks like a tree. It's a tree of life. And there's a table for showbread. There's all this stuff. 
And it was God's dwelling place with his people on earth. See, when Satan came into God's dwelling place in Eden and he deceived Eve, he was there trying to corrupt and trying to destroy any possibility that human beings can dwell with their creator. But God's like, that ain't gonna happen. My plan is that people will dwell with me forever. So he works through all of history. He makes the tabernacle this temporary movable place where God will dwell. And you remember that story, right? You remember that God dwelled with them and there was a pillar of fire and a a pillar of smoke to show God's presence as he led them around the wilderness, right? And then they make a tabernacle and, and there that's God's presence up until Ezekiel when God's presence leaves the temple. There's a whole chapter on that that is just so sad. But what's really interesting about this is Israel as the nation that God had chosen, the nation that God had said, you are my mouthpiece, you are my representatives to the world, I will dwell with you, is also the nation through which God himself will come and dwell with man. Man has had this opportunity throughout history up to this point to find where God is dwelling on the earth, to figure out what does it mean to participate with God? How can I enter that dwelling? And as you know, they had to kill a lamb over and over and over. It was a butcher shop all the time, blood flowing off the altar all day long because of sin. But if, they, but if those who were sacrificed, it would cover their sins temporarily and they could enter into the temple or the tabernacle and talk to the Lord and pray and be in his presence. Not into the Holy of Holies. That only happened once a year with a priest, right? And then all of a sudden, the glory of God leaves the temple. And some 400 plus years later, the glory of God comes back to earth in a form of a baby. Open up to John chapter one. See if I can even find John chapter one in my Bible. Took forever. It says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was fully God and the word was with God in the beginning. All things were created by him and apart from him, not one thing was created that was created. In him was life and the life was the light of mankind and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. Go to verse 10. He was in the world and the world was created by him, but the world did not recognize him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. So here, God's glory has been dwelling with Israel for a long time. There's this big gap in a few hundred years of gap, but then Jesus comes, God dwelling in the flesh, God fully God, fully man in the flesh. And he comes to Israel and they don't even recognize him. They don't recognize the glory of God anymore. They don't recognize when God himself is dwelling with them. As Ken said, I think the guys in the boat, when the waves are crashing and Jesus says, be still, they went, oh. Remember they asked, who is this that is in command over the seas and over the wind? And they listen. He's God himself. The disciples begin to understand, but the people of the time missed it. And I love the next couple of verses here. He says, 
He came to his own, his own people did not receive him, but all who have received him, those who believe in his name, so those who believe the gospel, have been given the right to become God's children. Not children born of human parents or by human desire or a husband's decision, but by God. Simply by belief, we are made fit to now dwell, to be able to dwell in God's presence. Because you know what happens after we believed, right? Ephesians chapter one says that the moment when you heard the gospel and you believe the gospel, the Holy Spirit came inside you and sealed you until the day of redemption. That is our inheritance. You know what our inheritance is? Open up to Revelation 20. God is so incredible. Obviously, it's an understatement. I'm sorry. There's so many words we could spend the rest of the day trying to describe him and and, and express that. Our inheritance we're going to see in this next, in this next section, this, this end of the Bible that mirrors the beginning of the Bible. In chapter 20, we find this, this scene where Satan is now um, arrested, so to speak. He's grabbing hold, grabbed hold of and he's, he's thrown in change, chains and then he is thrown into the pit where he has to stay for a thousand years. It's a pretty long prison sentence. He's let out for a little bit only to be defeated by fire and then to be thrown into the lake of fire where the Antichrist and the beast will already be. See, Satan came into God's presence in the garden, this, this, this earthly home of God, and he corrupted it. Thinking he could destroy what God's plan was for mankind to dwell with him forever, and he can't, and he didn't. Yes, he made some really nasty things. He, 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 he encouraged some incredibly horrible, evil things. And we see them. We, it's been part of our life. Death has been part of our life ever since. Sin has been part of our life ever since. But there's coming a day <laughs> where Satan will be completely judged. His head is crushed. He is powerless to God's, uh, against God and against God's plan. Remember, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are not offensive, are they? When you close and lock your door at night, you're not thinking, oh, we're going to get them now. (laughs) Right? We're thinking, ha, they can't get in. And Jesus said, ha, I can get in and I will get in. And I will have people from every tribe, tongue and nation and people group around the throne glorifying my son. Satan gets judged and thrown into the lake of fire. And then Revelation 21, ah, so good. Revelation 21, one through three says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first had ceased to exist and the sea existed no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne. So you know who that is saying, look, here it is. 
The residence of God is among human beings. He will live among his people. That started in Genesis. When God made everything good and he made it perfect, he made it right, he made it comfortable. He, he gave us some work, yes, but not like what we have now. Things, you know, things actually grew. You planted tomatoes, you got tomatoes. <laughs> and it wouldn't be this cold either, I don't think. But drop down into verse five, because I, I want us to be encouraged even more by this. He says, the one seated on the throne, we know who that is, right? It's Jesus. Look, I am making all things new. And then he said to me, write it down, because these words are reliable and true. <laughs> we live in this world right now that is just unreliable and truth is not truth. And, and we're, you know, there's, there's hopelessness and nothing grows right. And we're, you know, things are just falling apart. But because of Jesus Christ and the cross of Jesus Christ, and because we have believed, we have received the Holy Spirit inside us who is the guarantee for our future inheritance, which is not heaven. It is dwelling with our God here on earth, a new heaven, a new earth living in a whole new Jerusalem that's 1,400 miles wide and tall and long and deep and whatever other measurements you could have. It's this massive thing that we no longer need the sun, it'll go on to say. I mean, the bright one out there. He's gonna get rid of that. It's not even gonna shine and it would be pale in comparison to how the glory of God will fill the new Jerusalem. It'll light up the earth. In God's presence, God's imagers. Remember, we're being made into the image of Christ, right? We're his representatives. We will live on the whole earth just as God intended in the beginning. This is our God. This is the one we worship. This is the one who, this is the one who has said, Believe in me. And when you do, I and my father will come to you. He will send his spirit to you and he will indwell you. And remember in John 17, when he prayed that, he prayed, Father, make them one as you and I are one. And we get to be one with God. We get to be in his presence. And for all of eternity, we get to dwell with him with no death. No tears of sadness, no sin. Imagine what it'd be like on a Sunday morning to be led by the worship team and to have no sinful thoughts resonate in your heart at all. I can't imagine it, actually. I can't wait for it. Because one day it's gonna be true for us I want to show you this too. This is so exciting. You go to uh, chapter 22, verses three and four. And there will no longer be any curse. Things are going to grow. 
There's going to be water flowing from the throne of God. And on the sides of the river in heaven or on earth, there will be uh, trees, the tree of life. And it's going to produce 12 kinds of fruit. And he says that that's going to heal the nations. It's going to bring healing to all people. There will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the lamb will be in the city. His servants will worship him. This is the part I super love. And they will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more and they will no longer need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. God, his plans cannot be stopped. God and his plans and his design that he designed for man to live in his garden, paradise for eternity is going to happen. And we get to live there as believers only as believers. If, if you're in here today and you haven't believed and understood what Jesus has done for you, please talk to somebody in here today because this doesn't apply to you. Those who don't believe, Revelation 20 will talk about those who don't believe are judged by God and they are thrown into the lake of fire with Satan and his angels. Not where they're supposed to end up. Human beings are not supposed to be in the lake of fire. But because we are kicked out of God's presence and because we have sin and death in our life, that's what we deserve. But God at the cross has crushed Satan's head. He died and was raised three days later. And he says that anybody who believes, hears and believes, will be made right in his presence, will be given the Holy Spirit and then has this inheritance. We get to live with God forever. So this week, is, as you think about this week, as, you're, you know, as this week could be a struggling week, who knows what's gonna come out in the news? Who knows what people are gonna say and what untruth they're gonna call truth and what darkness they're gonna call light and what evil they're gonna call good? Because that's what's happening. We know that when all of this is, even with all of this going on, God's plan to take everyone who believes the gospel to dwell in his presence forever is going to happen. Jesus said, this will happen. And you and I can look forward more, can look uh, forward to more than what we can look forward to more than heaven. Cause that's going to be our time. We'll be there for a while. If, if he doesn't come get us first, right? We're gonna be where he is, but then he's gonna be on the earth and that's where we're gonna be for all eternity. Satan completely destroyed and no longer influencing man. Sin is completely gone and wiped out. Death is wiped out. By the way, when death is wiped out, that shows you for sure that sin is wiped out because death is the payment for sin. And if death is gone, there's no more sin. But that's, that's, that's a hope we have. That's that confidence that we can have in the midst of this world that is completely twisted and messed up. We can stop and we can look at the front of the Bible and get excited for who God is and what his plan was for man. And we can look at the back of the Bible and we can go, oh, look, God's still gonna do it. And we get to participate in that. As I 
finish up, I just, I just thank the Lord for each one of you. I thank God that you are in this family as I am. I thank God that you are in this battle as I am. And I thank God that we have the same hope through Jesus Christ. And again, it's not, it's not wishy-washy hope. It is a hope that gets you up in the morning. It is a hope that gets you into his word. Now when you read Leviticus, think of Eden. When you read of how they, all these intricate things that, that God wanted done, why do you want that done? So why it had to be just that way? Eden, God's dwelling place. They were creating God's dwelling place on earth. And God is going to recreate a dwelling place here on the earth after he washes it with fire. Remember, Jesus said to each one of us, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come back and I'll get you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness, God. You are just in, you're greater and bigger than, than all we could have imagined, asked or thought. God, your word is true. In this world that doesn't want you and doesn't want truth, at least they don't want your truth, the real truth. God, may we recognize truth. May we live truth. May we let you, Jesus, live out through us through the power of your Holy Spirit. May this group of believers infect their world for Jesus Christ. May their light shine because of the hope that they will one day dwell in your presence as you are dwelling in us now. God, may this time be encouragement to each one of us, God, because of you. I thank you in Jesus' name, amen.